daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Chinese President Xi Jinping urges for vision, openness, and cooperation in China-UK relations in a letter to an event commemorating the 70th anniversary of the icebreaking mission in China-UK trade. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is in Beijing for talks. U.S. President Joe Biden showed support for Sweden's entry into NATO in talks with visiting Swedish Prime Minister Ulf Kristersson. Welcome to World Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. Chinese President Xi Jinping sent a congratulatory letter on Thursday to an event commemorating the 70th anniversary of the icebreaking mission in China-UK trade. Xi Jinping pointed out that 70 years ago, British entrepreneurs, represented by Jack Perry, saw the bright future of new China and the huge potential of China-UK cooperation. He said these entrepreneurs broke the ice of ideology with courage and took the lead in opening up the channel of China-UK trade exchanges. In the letter, Xi Jinping expressed the hope that people of vision from all walks of life in China and Britain will carry on the pioneering spirit of openness and cooperation, promote the building of an open world economy, and make greater contributions to promoting China-UK friendship and cooperation. The commemorative event was co-hosted by China Council for the Promotion of International Trade, the 48 Group Club, and the China-Britain-British a business Council on Thursday in Beijing. Now, for more, we're joined by Duncan Bartlett. He is former BBC correspondent and research, research associate at uh, South China Institute, University of London. Duncan, thanks for joining us. Good to be on the program again. Now, uh, Duncan, a little bit background information for uh, for our listeners. Uh, the icebreaking mission here uh, referred to... Uh, is as follows. In 1954, uh, Jack Perry, founder of the London uh, Export Corporation, led a group of 48 British businessmen on a historic trade mission to Beijing that uh, helped to create one of the first modern-day trade links with China, uh, so effectively breaking the U.S.-led Western embargo on you know, the newly founded People's Republic of China. And then the 48 men were the founders of the 48 Group Club, uh, and that trip became known as the Icebreaking Mission. Um, so, Duncan, uh, how, how would you see the significance of that trip 70 years ago? Well, it was significant, and that's why the 48 clubs still use that name, because they see this long heritage of trade and exchange between uh, Britain and the UK, uh, Britain and China. Uh, and that, of course, had its ups and downs as a result of uh, geopolitical changes. Uh, I would say at the moment, actually, the 48 Club is uh, a great advocate for closer business ties between Britain and China. It's a relatively rare voice, actually, because on the whole, it's the hawkish voices which tend to uh, get the most attention uh, in the media. Uh, And actually, within the uh, House of Commons, there was a meeting actually uh, organised by Conservative MPs yesterday uh, in which the the hawks were critical uh, of the um, uh, Chinese uh, governance of Hong Kong, 
Hong Kong, of course, used to be a, a British colony, which was handed back to China in 1997. I was going to make one other observation about the timing of that meeting and that letter from Xi Jinping. It's interesting because in a couple of days' time, London is preparing to welcome a VIP guest. Uh, President Joe Biden is coming here from the United States. He'll meet Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, uh, and then he'll go to meet the king. So I think it is significant that uh, China is also noting uh, that it is open to a warm relationship with the UK, just as the American president is about to arrive here.、Mm. Now, Duncan, why do you think Jack Perry and these business British businessmen,、uh, you know, make the make the decision to come to China? Seventy、um, years ago, when the new China was actually、um, effectively under embargo by、uh, under embargo by the United States, what did they see in well, the new China? It, it was a very different world then, wasn't、mm-hmm. it? Who could have predicted the way in which、uh, the Chinese economy would grow and China would become such、exactly. an important、uh, mm-hmm. country in the world? Seventy years ago, I think that would have been inconceivable. But you know, now China is the leading trade partner with so many countries around the world. It's absolutely crucial trade partner for for Britain. So I can understand actually why、um, Xi Jinping talked about a visionary situation.、Mm-hmm. And of course, there's an echo there, isn't there, in what was said in that letter about overcoming ideology and、mm-hmm. uh, rigid thinking, because this has been a theme not just of what Xi Jinping is saying to Britain here. But also the senior Chinese leadership in a whole series of speeches and meetings recently. So, Premier Li Chang, for example, gave、mm. that big speech to the World Economic Forum, which I know you covered on the World Today、uh, last week,、uh, in which he encouraged countries to to set aside this idea of de-risking.、Mm. Effectively, what China's leaders are saying is, don't worry about the risks of doing business with China. Look at the opportunity. Now, Duncan,、uh, when we look back on that trip seventy years ago,、uh, what are some of the philosophies of that trip? Do you think can still provide some f- principles for today's China-UK relations? Well, that's a tricky question. You'd probably be better put, better better putting it to a, a, a historian. But I mean, the principles at the moment are spelled out by the British Foreign Secretary in a big speech that he gave on UK-China relations a few weeks ago,、mm. which is that Britain is open to doing business with China and will try to、uh, find ways of、uh, of having fruitful partnerships in certain areas. For example, over environmental issues. I know at the moment you're really sweating at the very extreme temperatures、uh, in Beijing. We've just had. Record warmth in June as well, and that's a reminder of the importance of uh, emphasising uh, cooperation on, on on climate change issues.、Mm. But you know, let, let's 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 remember that there are areas in which there are political disagreements. It'll be interesting to see when James Cleverly, the British Foreign Secretary, goes to Beijing in a couple of weeks' time, what he says on those tense、uh, issues. But、no. there are a range、mm. of views on China within the UK.、Mm. Then、uh, the two、uh, established China and UK established diplomatic relations in the 1970s,、um, and since then the trade volume has、uh, grown significantly. And then, how do you see the significance of that,、uh, especially to people of the two countries? Well, let me say this:、mm. China makes a lot of things which people in the UK want to buy. So、mm. we're we're a big market for Chinese manufactured goods. Britain 
does not export very much to China. It hasn't got a huge number of things that China wants. I mean, if you were to compare the situation with, you know, say, South Korea or Japan or the United States, they make and sell to China a lot of uh, technology and other advanced equipment. So, so, you know, China, China has a reason to want to do business with them. I mean, Britain, I would say, is pretty low down the list, actually, of countries with which China sees enormous trade opportunities. And the other thing is that the British government, the Conservative government, have blocked Chinese companies from getting involved in, in, in uh, the development of telecoms, uh, buying a uh, semiconductor manufacturing plant, uh, and also um, getting involved in the development of the nuclear industry here. So from the Chinese perspective, Britain does not look like a very good place to do business, although it is, of course, an important export market for Chinese mm. companies. Duncan, in general, how do you think China is perceived these days at Downing Street number 10? Mr. Sunak, the Prime Minister, is quite careful about what he says about China, and the Foreign Secretary is also very measured. The thing is that this current Conservative government is weak. Uh, They are trailing behind in the opinion polls. And at the moment, foreign policy issues are pretty low down the list of their priorities. Mm. Nevertheless, Mr. Sunak is emphasizing the very strong alliance between the United Kingdom and the United States. Mm. There'll be warm handshakes at number 10 Downing Street with President Biden. And, of course, Britain remains a permanent member of the UN Security Council, which means that it is in constant debate about uh, the uh, security and defense issues with China at the United Nations in New York. Uh, And that means that whatever the trade and political situations between the two countries, there has to be open dialogue and exchange of ideas. Well, um, as you mentioned, UK is the closest ally of the United States, and it looks like the US and China are entering a prolonged strategic competition. So um, how would UK position itself, you know, on this during this competition as the closest ally of the US? Well, I think when Secretary of State Antony Blinken went to Beijing a few weeks ago, and now Janet Yellen is uh, with you at the moment in China, I think British diplomats at the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office are taking careful notes. They're saying, what are the Americans doing right? What can we uh, take from their example? But I mean, then, Duncan, the is, the is the U.S. <laughs> following America's China policy only? Does U.K. try to you know, forge its own China policy? I would say mm. that at the moment, British foreign policy is very strongly influenced by the United States, mm. not just on U.S.-China rivalry, but also on uh, support for the uh, Ukrainians uh, in the war against Russia and on other issues. But so then, Duncan, G7 is... Country, the, G7, mm. the G7 countries actually are pretty much aligned on most of these foreign policy issues. Mm. But Duncan, is is UK's national interest on China, uh, also on a lot of other issues, always totally in line with Washington? Well, I think that depends who you speak to. If you spoke to those people in the 48 group that you mentioned at the beginning, they would say, we pay far too much attention to the United States. We should have our own uh, relations with China. Look at all the benefits of people-to-people exchanges. Look at all the Chinese students who are coming to study in British universities. Look at all the beautiful Chinese restaurants that uh, are the deep cultural links between uh, the UK and China. Let's put more emphasis on that rather than on these... uh, 
historic uh, and ideological issues. That would be mm-hmm. the point of view of the uh, more friendly organizations that you mentioned at the start of the report. Mm. Well, this certainly... Uh is um i mean the relations between china and the united kingdom is indeed uh important for both sides i mean to to say the very least but thank you duncan i was duncan butler former bbc correspondent speaking on the issue of china uk relations coming up we'll take a look at u.s treasury secretary janet yellen's visit in beijing you're listening to world today we'll be right back turning the tables Beijing appears set to play its trump card in the trade war Washington is leading against Chinese tech, setting to restrict exports of two essential rare metals for chip making. What impact will the Chinese move have? How long can its effect sustain? And how many more aces does Beijing have up sleeve? Get the answers to these questions and more on this week's Chat Lounge podcast and CGTN Radio. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is in Beijing for talks. The U.S. Treasury Department said Yellen will discuss how the U.S. views its economic relationship with China and will meet with senior Chinese officials and representatives from leading American firms. Before her visit, Yellen met with Chinese ambassador to the U.S. Xie Feng and discussed economic and trade issues. Yellen's trip to China comes shortly after visit by U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken. Now, for more on this, we're joined by Professor Chu Bo, China Foreign Affairs University. Thank you, Professor Chu, for talking to us again. Prior to her visit to China, Yellen was uh, met with Xie uh, Feng, Chinese ambassador to the U.S., and both sides said the conversation was "quote unquote" frank and constructive. So, how would you see, you know, the signals being sent out by both sides? So, first of all, I think definitely that is a good sign. Uh, and especially for Yellen, just like uh, you are visiting to other countries, uh, visiting other uh, peoples, and, and in advance you have how to prepare, right? So I think that is the reason why she uh, met with uh, Chinese ambassador Xie Feng before she uh, came uh, comes to China. And on the other hand, and we also can look at um, uh, Yellen really keen on uh, her trip to China. And he uh, and she really hope her visit uh, could achieve um, the uh, positive uh, positive outcomes and especially and uh, I think she ho- really hopes uh, her visit could be a successful one. Mm. Then, Professor Chu, what do you think the U.S. side really wants to achieve by this trip? And uh, what about China side? I think from the United States side and uh, definitely. Uh, uh, for now on, I think the United States really want to stabilize the uh, bilateral uh, economic relations, and that could send a positive signal to the world, and, stabil- and especially uh, to stabilize the expectation of world about a U.S. economy. In specific, and I think there are several issues. So first of all, like the uh, microeconomic uh, co- uh, coordination mm. between China and the United States, and especially we know the United States suffer from the inflation problem mm. and uh, the fight increase the uh, interest rates. And then there are other problems, negative implication for the companies. So I think this is first is uh, about the microeconomic coordination uh, is about the inflation. The second, definitely that uh, will be about debt problem. Mm. And we know uh, 
the last month, the United States, uh, the, the, the Congress has passed the uh, new uh, legislation and uh, to uh, increase the setting of the debt. So I think definitely the United States uh, is going to issue uh, more uh, debt. And definitely, uh, I think the United States needs uh, the international market could be uh, could have uh, could possible uh, positive uh, response uh, to the new issuing mm. uh, the debt. And the third, I think, much more specific on trade, and especially recently, um, because the United States tried to uh, impose a certain export control on on China's uh, on China. So I think China uh, has taken some the counter uh, balancing. Uh, measures. Uh, so I think this is also could be the issue for the United States side, and from China side, and I think is also definitely uh, is uh, stabilize the uh, uh, the uh, economy and especially the microeconomic co- uh, coordination uh, between uh, two sides. And second, uh, definitely I think is about tariff, and mm-hmm. we know since Trump administration, the United States has imposed a tariff unfairly on Chinese company. And I think uh, this will be uh, also from our side. And third, and I think um, and w- w- in order to stabilize the bilateral relations in uh, overall, and I think definitely, uh, and we need to uh, establish or resume certain kind of working uh, mechanism mm. on economic affairs. Mm. Um, well, that's already a very comprehensive uh, overlook of, uh, you know, how the talks might unfold in the upcoming few days. Um, Professor Chu, in announcing the trip, uh, U.S. Treasury Department uh, quoted a speech Yellen made this past April at uh, Johns Hopkins SICE. Uh, the speech said uh, U.S. The, the, the statement from the U.S. Treasury Department said U.S. seeks three principles in engaging with China regarding the economy. Uh, and these three principles were to secure U.S. national interest, security interests and to protect human rights through targeted actions, two, to seek a healthy economic relationship with China and expand economic opportunity for American workers and businesses, and three, to seek to cooperate on urgent global challenges like climate change and debt distress. So, Professor Chu, how would you see these principles? I mean, are they fair principles suitable for government level dialogues? So I think uh, mm-hmm. the first is much more. Uh, the first uh, she said, the principle she said is much more vague, mm-hmm. and I think that mostly for domestic politics, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Side to the domestic, the American uh, politicians, and uh, I think the second and third principles are much uh, are much more uh, important. And uh, and also, I think uh, she also acknowledged that the United States benefited uh, from the uh, Sino-U.S. economic uh, 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 engagement mm. uh, since the last uh, four decades or since China uh, joined the WTO, right? Definitely the United States benefits. And now the United States uh, still uh, engaging with China and uh, still uh, maintain uh, the economic relations also on the benefits of the United States and uh, uh, and good for uh, U.S. Empl- uh, the, uh, workers and the business person, right? Mm. So if we look at it in the last four decades, why the United States could maintain, as uh, still maintain as the number one uh, economic status in the world. And I think uh, there are uh, definitely China 
the Sino-U.S. economic relations def- definitely contribute uh, to that purpose uh, because, first of all, China provides uh, relatively uh, low-cost uh, 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 consumption uh, manufactured goods. Mm. And second, uh, China also invest, uh, uh, investment back in the United States and support the United States financial system. So when we look back about in the last uh, uh, four decades, the the bilateral economic uh, relations definitely that is a win-win cooperation. Mm. That, that not just trying to win uh, twice. Definitely, mm. that is the win-win cooperation. So that is why, uh, and I think Yelin mentioned uh, the relation could benefit both sides. And also, uh, the climate change mm. and other new issues definitely need uh, the two biggest uh, economic joints uh, to cooperate together. Mm. Well, as you mentioned, U.S. companies and businesses have been doing business in China for the past uh, you know, few decades. Uh, Yellen is set to meet with some U.S. company representatives in Beijing. Um, well, how do you think American businesses are viewing their China market these days, especially against uh, you know, increasingly protective U.S. economic policy against China? So I, I think definitely Chinese market uh, is very important for um, American uh, companies' comparative advantage uh, in the world. And I think during Trump administration, uh, the U.S. business uh, circle may be a little uh, skeptical about Chinese market, but after the Trump administration and especially the first two years of Joe Biden's administration, now the American business cycle, the business, uh, business persons realize uh, the um, the importance or the significant uh, importance of Chinese market. So uh, you can uh, uh, look at recently uh, the, the 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 CEOs of the uh, United States big companies also came to China and mm-hmm. visited China, and uh, you know uh, by now China uh, we have uh, like three to four uh, hundred million uh, so-called middle income. Uh, groups, so mm. I think that is a definitely a great large uh, a market for uh, international business. Mm. Well, Professor, um, we have one more minute before we wrap up the conversation. But uh, what for China to further stimulate growth and develop uh, its own economy is one of the priorities, perhaps the biggest one. So, how do you think uh, the Chinese government should prioritize, especially you know, against the U.S. effort to really isolate China? So in the past, we say there are three drivers for economic growth, mm. uh, the consumption, investment, and export, right? Mm. And because now the export uh, uh, influenced, heavily influenced by U.S. Uh, policy. So I think that is why uh, presidency uh, and Chinese government uh, in the last uh, several years and now try to make our economic growth much more on domestic consumption. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think from the last year and uh, this year, there will be new measures uh, and to uh, uh, to uh, facilitate domestic consumption and to facilitate facilitate domestic market uh, 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 circle much more uh, healthy and uh, uh, ad- uh, get advanced development. Mm-hmm. 
Well, indeed, we'll keep an eye on, you know, how the talks will unfold、um, in the coming time. But thank you for joining us. That was Qu Bo, professor with China Foreign Affairs University. Coming up, Biden showed support for Sweden's NATO membership bid. For further discussions, find us on Twitter at CGTN Radio. This is World Today. We'll be right back. CGTN Radio's most popular programs, World Today, provides listeners with a strong mix of international news and business. It delivers in-depth analysis of current affairs and one-on-one interviews, bringing you the stories behind the news—not just what's happening, but why. Welcome back. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. U.S. President Joe Biden showed support for Sweden's entry into NATO in talks with visiting Swedish Prime Minister Ulf Kristersson on Wednesday. Sweden's membership is still in question as Turkey and Hungary are yet to come on board. Biden, seated next to Kristersson in the Oval Office with reporters present, said he anxiously looked forward to Sweden's membership in NATO. Kristersson said after the meeting that the two leaders agreed that the upcoming summit in Lithuania was a natural time to finalize the Nordic countries' bid to join NATO. But he also said he and Biden knew that "quote unquote" only Turkey can make Turkish decisions. Biden will leave on Sunday on a three-nation trip centered around the summit in Lithuania, where NATO members hope to welcome Sweden as its newest member. Sweden and Finland applied for NATO membership last year, ditching long-held policies of military non-alignment following the war in Ukraine. For further discussions, we're joined by Scott Lucas. He is professor of American Studies and International Politics at University of Birmingham. Thank you, Professor Lucas, and great to have you back on the show. Good day to you. Thank you for having me here. Now, Professor, how do you see the main mission for Swedish Prime Minister's visit to Washington, and did he achieve anything? The primary topic, of course, will be of Ukraine. And the current Ukraine counteroffensive to liberate its territory, but that specific issue is linked to wider issues,、uh, and foremost amongst them is、uh, Swedish succession to NATO to become its 32nd member. So that I think will be the headline issue, but there will also be other important regional and global issues.、Uh, I think this is a historic change in terms of what is happening in Europe, the most important since 1945. So there will be a general discussion about U.S.-European relations. There will be a discussion of issues such as climate change, where Sweden plays a big part in efforts to deal with the damage to the environment, and also discussions about communications, where Sweden has a big role in the development of 5G and 6G networks.、Mm. A lot of things on their plate. Now, Professor, how is how important is it for Sweden to be officially included in the upcoming uh, in, uh, included in NATO during the upcoming NATO summit in Lithuania? Why does it have to happen at this time? 
Well, Sweden will be in the mm. discussions in Vilnius, in Lithuania, uh, later this month, even if they are not able to become an official member because of the blockade by Turkey and by Hungary. Uh, why is it important to Sweden? Or, well, I think that Swedish public opinion has changed, has is dramatically changed because of Ukraine, like its neighbor Finland. I think the populations and the leaders of both countries said that the neutral position uh, is no longer one which protects us necessarily. There are already close political and economic relationships with many of the NATO countries, and so that there is no harm with developing a close military relationship for defense. Uh, I But think then, there were already developing... Mm, professor, why is important? Uh, why is the timing important? Why does it have to happen during the summit in Lithuania now? Oh, I, I don't think Sweden has to become a formal member in Lithuania. I think mm. that was the hope. Mm. Uh, it was the hope that after uh, his re-election as Turkish president uh, this spring... Mm. That President Erdogan would drop his objections, that the Hungarian Prime Minister, Mr. Orban, would stop his posing and would step aside, and that yes, everything could be completed for Sweden as it was for Finland in April. But even if the Swedish uh, accession is not until later this year or even next year, I, I don't think it changes the realities of the fact that there is a much closer working relationship between Swedish officials. And the officials of the other 31 NATO members.、Mm. Well, as you mentioned,、uh, Turkey blocked Sweden's bid, saying、uh, Sweden has、uh, harbored Kurdish exiles and refugees affiliated with Kurdistan Workers Party, which、uh, Turkey considers Turkey considers as a terrorist group.、Um, You already said that、uh, you know the decision of Turkey will depend on the election.、Uh, what about other issues,、um, fact, you know, factors influencing Turkey's policy on this? For example, its bargain with the United States to buy F-35 fighter jets. Well, I, I think you're quite right to highlight that the official line of President Erdogan. This this is all about the Kurdish population in Sweden. And the attempt、uh, by Turkey to get Sweden to put pressure on Kurdish activists, claiming that they are part of this Kurdish insurgency inside Turkey, that that's actually just a pose. I think,、uh, as we have seen for years, President Erdogan will use issues to get leverage.、Uh, he'll try to get leverage, for example, to try to get those U.S. fighter jets、uh, and to get other favors from U.S. and Europe. But I think the primary reason why Erdogan is maintaining the blockade is actually because he's in trouble in Turkey. Despite being reelected, he has an economy which is in very, very poor shape. Inflation is still around about 40 percent. The Turkish currency is at an all-time low, and indeed has lost about 75 percent of its value in the last couple of years. And I think Erdogan is trying to distract Turks from the fact that. They have probably got a very tough economic situation ahead, and so he'll try to position the Swedes as being the real issue,、uh, and he'll maintain that blockade on Swedish membership while he thinks he is still in domestic trouble over the economy. Well. Certainly, there are a lot of issues, you know, affecting the domestic political、uh, situation in Turkey. For example, you know, as you mentioned, inflation, economy, and maybe you know the the NATO issue is one of them.、Uh, but that will be the topic for another time. <laughs> so,、um, during the upcoming NATO summit in Lithuania, what main issues do you think leaders will discuss? 
Well, I think uh, we've already mentioned that Swedish accession will be one of them. But I think, of course, the question of Ukraine's accession to NATO will be discussed. Now, NATO will not be offered membership uh, at this summit. I think the line has been set out very clearly by NATO members, which is the priority is the Ukrainian counteroffensive to liberate its territory. Once Ukraine has liberated most of its territory, once Vladimir Putin either accepts Russia's defeat or others force Mr. Putin to step aside, then you can talk about Ukraine coming into NATO. But I think there's also broader issues beyond uh, that of Ukraine's accession, which is uh, the changing nature where Eastern Europe in particular, you have to develop a defensive position because of what has happened with Russia. You have to devote the resources. You have to talk about troop deployments. You have to talk about cooperation. And of course, the NATO countries will talk not only about building up their defensive efforts with respect to Russia, they'll talk about building up military strength as we talk about developing political issues involving other countries in the world. We are running out of time for this topic, and we appreciate your time uh, and insights for this topic. Thank you. That was Scott Lucas, Professor of American Studies and International Politics at University of Birmingham. This is World Today. We'll be right back. I am Dan Wang, Chief Economist of Hang Seng Bank, China. The World Today is a real fun program. You will hear interesting people discussing global trend, economic event, what's happening in and outside of China. So, friends around the world, hope you can join us. Welcome back. You're listening to World Today. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. More than 3,000 industry experts, scholars, and officials from international organizations worldwide are gathering in Geneva, Switzerland, to identify practical AI solutions to accelerate progress towards the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. The UN International Telecommunication Union organized the two-day AI for Good Global Summit to establish a global regulatory framework. It also aims to network AI innovators with public and private sector decision makers to stimulate collaboration efforts and ensure AI technologies benefit humanity equally. For more, my colleague Xu Yawen spoke with Andy Mock, a tech analyst and senior research fellow at the Center for China and Globalization. Andy, first of all, at this year's AI for Good Summit, participants include diplomats, academics, and business leaders from companies such as Google, Amazon, and Microsoft. So one of the highlights of the summit is the participation of a few humanoid robots. So could you tell us how advanced is this technology? Like when can we expect to see it being used in our daily lives? Well, that's such a good question, uh, Yawan. You know, I'm not sure anyone really knows because expectations, I think, vary widely. So for some people, you know, just the fact of having a robot that can uh, move and maybe say some basic things might be considered a real breakthrough. Uh, others might have much higher expectations. So I think it's really uh, very, very difficult to say. And I'm not, not sure that's probably the most important part of this conference, that it's probably entertaining for sure, but um, there's probably other more significant topics going on there, I would imagine. 
Yeah, they are also there to discuss the usage of AI technologies into healthcare, into research and development, and into other、um, sectors as well. So, speaking of that, one of the goals of the summit is to utilize AI technologies to advance the UN Sustainable Development Goals. So, these goals include advancing health and well-being, eliminating poverty,、uh, fighting climate change, and ensuring inclusive prosperity, and so on and so forth. So, could you elaborate more on how AI could help the UN achieve its sustainable development goals? Well, I think that's a great question, and it's a very important question. So,、um, I think one, it's noteworthy that the UN is doing this,、uh, not one particular country. Now, why this is very important is we know that countries like the United States, or I would say perhaps uniquely so, the United States. Uh, has been at the forefront of many of the AI breakthroughs, especially the ones that people are talking about the most, like ChatGPT, other generative AI applications. And the danger we run here then is that it becomes a very U.S.-centric、uh, way of thinking about how do we use AI to make the world a better place, like you said, with poverty alleviation, climate change,、um, you know, all of the SDGs. Now the fact that this is happening under the auspices of the UN means that the viewpoints, the concerns,、uh, the opportunities will be much more diverse and much more representative of everyone on the planet, not just five percent of the world's population. So I think this is probably the most important aspect of this particular AI conference or AI summit. Yes, indeed. Under the UN, we could say this is a global multilateral discussion. Then, would you say that AI technologies have the potential to help close the gap between developing and developed countries? Yeah, that's another really, really good question. So, what some people believe, some technologists, people involved in developing AI, believe that it actually will be a great equalizing force, because what we've seen. Uh, with other technologies, is that they tend to disproportionately benefit small percentage of the population. So we look at the internet. You know, we have、uh, a handful of companies that have become multi-trillion-dollar companies. We have a relatively small group of people that have become billionaires, and of course, many other people have benefited. But、um, you know, it's been somewhat unequal. Now, the exciting thing about AI, at least according to some people involved in its development, is that it exactly can make someone that might not write so well, might not be as knowledgeable as someone who has the benefit of an elite university education, much more competitive. So, as long as they have an internet connection and access to an AI、uh, application. They may be much more competitive in the global marketplace. So I think certainly、uh, this is one area that could be of great interest to an organization like the UN or other organizations that are concerned more about overall human welfare rather than just profit maximization. We just discussed the opportunities and the benefits of using AI technologies. Could you elaborate more about the potential risks? Like what challenges do we face? If we're going to massively use this technology in our lives, well, I think there's a、uh, you know kind of the generic risk that、uh, everyone talks about. So, you know, could AI 
develop consciousness and then decide that it wants to eliminate mankind, right? So some mm-hmm. would call this a civilization-level risk. There's risks such as it will disrupt employment and put many people out of work, like collar workers out of work. Um, there's risk around misinformation, privacy, these sort of things. Now, if we think about it from the UN perspective, you know, which is looking at the world's population, but with a particular emphasis on the lesser developed parts of the world, what we perhaps could call the global south. You know, these risks might not be as acute, but the risks or the challenges might be around accessibility. You know, we think about the SDGs, of which there are 17, ranging from what you talked about, poverty, but also elimination of hunger, uh, education, gender equality, water and sanitation, etc. These uh, really type of very broad-based human welfare type measures that AI could certainly play a very powerful transformational role. Uh, The key challenge is accessibility. That's a good point. That's actually one of the concerns of mine when you're talking about the benefits and opportunities, because it's all based on internet, and you have to have the access to that. Another thing is that, uh, Andy, the summit aims to establish a framework, a regulatory framework, to manage the use of AI technologies. So given the rapid changes and advancements in AI technologies nowadays, So do we have, as human beings, do we have the ability to mitigate the risks associated with increasingly powerful AI technologies? Because we know in Europe, for example, last month, they rolled out the AI Act, which is the world's first comprehensive AI law. So is that going to be the trend? First of all, is that going to be the trend? And secondly, do we have the power to manage it? Well, I think that's, you know, the the question that are, is on the minds of a lot of people. Um, You know, the other area for AI, of course, is use in warfare. And this is causing, again, a lot of concern and anxiety around the world. And one good thing, then, is that um, a multilateral approach or under a multilateral organization like the UN uh, certainly seems like a very good place to start. Because, again, that's, I think, the best way to get greater input and more complete understanding of you know, what the framework, what are the principles that should be used to benefit uh, or to regulate AI. So I think, again, you know, this is, it's a very, it seems like a very sensible way to approach this. And the ICU, uh, of course, has a long history of being involved in communication standards. Um, So everything from, I guess, what, telegraph to telephone to satellite communications. So uh, it certainly would make sense uh, that this is the, at least one of the homes or one of the centers for developing a better global approach to managing AI. That was Andy Mark, a tech analyst and senior research fellow at the Center for China and Globalization. You're listening to World Today. We'll be right back. Hello, I am Dr. Digby James Wren, a political analyst and international relations scholar specializing in China area studies. World Today offers unmatched in-depth perspectives on China's politics, economics, business, technology and society. World Today's team of reporters and contributors provides valuable information from all of the world's major economies. I hope you can join me on World Today for the very best insights and news from China, on China and help to build a better understanding of China's role in the world today. Welcome back. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. 
China's education minister Huai Jinpeng said China's higher education design will adapt continuously to the evolving socio-economic development in the country. Huai Jinpeng made the remarks responding to questions related to college graduate employment issue at a press briefing on Thursday. National statistics show, in the first five months of the year, unemployment rate among young people aging 16 to 24 has risen to 20.8 percent, the highest since 2018, when the government started collecting related data. Huai Jinpeng said, "College graduate talent supply not only need to match the demand of the labor market, but also need to view the demand with foresight." Now, for more, we're joined by Liu Zhiqin, senior fellow of Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies, Renmin University of China. Thank you for joining us again. Now,、uh, first up,、uh, how would you explain the youth unemployment issue these days? Because you know people are paying close attention to it. What are some of the reasons? I think this is very simple to understand because every society, especially. For a developing country like China, that、uh, we are very concerned about the employment or unemployment rate, because this is the key element of the economic recovery. As we know, in the past three four years, that China has so huge number of graduates from universities. Every year, the average is ten、uh, million, I think. Three or four years already, thirty、uh, million or forty million graduates. This is a、uh, Uh, unbelievable in the Western countries because this、uh, number is already one country's huge population in Europe.、Mm. So this is really a very hard job for our central government. But I think our government has paid great concern and made a great effort, and also worked out、uh, very effective measures to solve or to soften such a、uh, pressure from the employment. So in this way,、I'm, I believe that the minister in education in China has already reiterated that the government will do its best to、uh, ease this tension of the employment market, but also will try to find out more opportunities for the young graduates.、Mm. Well, at the press briefing,、uh, education minister also said college graduates' talent supply not only need to match the demand of the labor market, but also need to view the market,、uh, the demand, excuse me, with foresight. What does he mean by foresight?、Uh, does he mean that the current college education design need to change?、Uh, actually, this is a quite important、uh, issue. As we know, that many people always say that.、Uh, Uh, to solve this、uh, graduate employment, in order to put them in the in the market as a normal labor force,、mm-hmm. in order to get or、uh, uh, to cover the gap of the employment in in some manufacturers and real economies, for instance, in some certain part of China, the many private companies are short of graduates actually. But、uh, the, this is another point because, but we have to see that. All these talented graduates from China, in Chinese community、uh, university, they need that a full swing or full range of this employment, not only for、uh, as a simple or the、uh, simple the labor force in the market, but also they should be become、uh, innovative, become a more effective, productive, and become more.、Uh, Uh, effort maker or the market improver that、uh, to get this society more progress, 
At the mm. moment, I think many students or even their families are also waiting for a, a easy labor force in 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 some institutions, for instance. Mm. But also, this is only I think only one small part of this demand, and we have the whole society should consider as a whole that to absorb these graduates in different areas, in different fields, and make all these students and the graduates for, to feel that, to fulfill their role and also knowledge what they had learned to serve the society, to give best service to the society and to the country. Well, um, how do you think, um, you know, talking about these changes um, that we just mentioned, how do you think universities should adapt? I think the university has two point possibilities. First, they should have to uh, uh, continue to educate the students with the traditional knowledge, but also they should cope with the advanced development of the latest technology uh, mm-hmm. to meet the demand of the latest advancing of the new technologies. For instance, the green technology and also the carbon uh, reduction, especially for new energy uh, technology. So all this new field really needed a lot of specialists, specialized knowledge for such students. And as we know that in some areas that the students they didn't have enough time or enough knowledge that to fulfill their uh, uh, responsibility. So in this way, that the, the university can have more time or more chances to train or to retrain the, those students that in order to meet the demands of the society. Well, certainly this is a big issue um, because it involves households around uh, around the country. And uh, as you mentioned, the government, universities, as well as students themselves may need to do some thinking and be more uh, take more initiatives themselves to you know to really tackle the challenges thank you that was Liu Zhiqin senior fellow of Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies at Renmin University of China well that's all the time we have for this edition of World Today a quick recap of the headlines Chinese President Xi Jinping urges for vision, openness, and cooperation in China-UK relations in a letter to an event commemorating the 70th anniversary of the icebreaking mission in China-UK trade. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is in Beijing for talks. U.S. President Joe Biden showed support for Sweden's entry into NATO in talks with visiting Swedish Prime Minister Ulf Kristersson. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. For further discussions, you can follow us on Twitter at CGTN Radio. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Thank you for staying with us. Bye for now.